This episode of Inquisitive is brought to you by Lynda.com and Cards Against Humanity. My name is John Syracusa, and I don't have a favorite album, but I really do like U2's Octung Baby. You don't have a favorite album, like, at all? Or, or is it just it's too difficult a question to answer? I don't like to destroy the premise of your podcast here, but I think picking a favorite album is very difficult. Uh, it's not as hard as picking a favorite child, but it's close. I think it's harder than picking a favorite movie. Uh, and so it was very difficult for me to pick an album uh, for this show, and I ended up picking one... The picking of the album, I think, was almost as interesting as the album that we're going to discuss itself, because there are a lot of things to say about my selection. Some of the things you could say is it may not even be U2's best album, and you, I could also even say that it's not my sort of sentimental favorite, because my sentimental favorite album gets a boost from the fact that most people don't like it. So this one ends up winning be, uh, for strange reasons. It's an album uh, that has such high esteem in my mind because I think it is a great album. I really do like it, and it's partially defined by the albums that come before it and after it. You know, I actually don't think that that is a weird statement, like, that it's real. you know, that you don't have a favorite album because it's, it's hard to pick, because I actually kind of agree. Um, uh, people have asked me what my favorite album is and I have some contenders and if I had to pick one, I think I could pick one but I don't know if I would be able to say it was my favorite it's just the one that makes the most sense Yeah, like I said, even just among U2 albums and U2 was my, my first first love the first band that I got heavily into even just among U2 albums I can't even pick one let alone all albums that were ever made but I, this is a really great album and so I didn't have much trouble choosing uh it was either this one or joshua tree and this i thought was the less obvious more interesting choice and it does have a particular place in my personal history with the band so where did your love for you two begin well being a person of a certain age as they say in french uh, i heard all of the uh u2 hits on Top 40 Radio, which is what I listened to for a very long time when many of my peers were buying cassette tapes or record albums or all sorts of stuff like that, I was still just listening to what was on Top 40 Radio. Uh, and of the things that were on Top 40, of course, U2's biggest hits were on. So the Joshua Tree, you had the all the number one tracks from the Joshua Tree, heard them all the time. Pride in the Name of Love was thrown in the mix. Every once in a blue moon, you would get Sunday, Bloody Sunday depending on which Top 40 album, uh, top, top 40 radio station I was listening to, and it was a special show, they were going to play stuff outside the Top 40. That was my familiarity with U2, was the things they played on the radio, which, as anyone will tell you who grew up in the time of Top 40 radio, that's not a really good way to get to know a band, but I, ju I just wasn't into music. Like, I liked songs that I heard on the radio. I liked some songs better than other, but I wasn't, gonna, I wasn't going out and buying music for myself. I was taping it off the radio, and my parents had a bunch of records that they played that were not really my bands, but that I came to, you know, uh, know and enjoy is just because uh, music that was on in the house. But I wasn't into anything. That I wasn't into U2, I wasn't into any band. And the way I got into it was, I, I can't remember the exact company name, but I think it was Columbia House. 
they had a thing where you would give them some absurdly low amount of money and they would give you uh, X number of free CDs. And then they wanted to get you on like an installment plan where every month you paid a certain amount and got to pick a certain number of CDs. And it was this whole, I don't, it's not a pyramid scheme. Uh, it wasn't really much of a scam. It was just a way for them to get you on some sort of recurring payment program. And the thing to do was to sign up for the thing, get the free CDs and cancel. And if you were a kid and had nothing better to do except fill out paperwork, you could do that. So I don't know where I heard about this or why I thought to do it. I mean, this was this was the days before email or spam. So we get actual physical junk mail that said, hey, you can get seven new CDs, free CDs for one dollar or whatever. Uh, and so I signed up for that. And when I signed up for it, it must have been around 1991. And the heavily advertised album on the, you know, here, pick from these CDs that you want free. I picked this one. I don't know why I picked it. I don't know what other albums I picked. But when they all came in the mail, this is the one that I put into my little portable uh, Panasonic Discman player uh, and listened to. And this is the one that stuck with me. And I, like I said, I honestly have no idea what the other CDs were that came with it. I don't even think there were any other U2 ones. But this this was it. This was the album. And so this was the, the first time that I... I think the first time that I ever purchased music on my own, even though it was super cheap, and listened to an album all the way through from beginning to end of an album that I bought, not just like my parents' uh, Billy Joel albums or whatever. So probably I'm going to guess unlike anybody who has, well, that has picked so far, and I would also expect anyone that will pick later, Your the, the album that you've chosen for your favorite album is actually your first album. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I might have had some cassette singles. Maybe I had Billy Joel on cassette, but this is the the first one that like sort of got its hooks into me, that I said, I want to hear more music by this band. This really speaks to me, that I'm excited by it, and I rapidly followed it by buying everything else that U2 had ever done. Why do you think U2 stuck? I mean, I can't imagine it was just because it was like your first right I, I can't imagine that that's the reason that they have been able to kind of stick their claws in and hang on to you for so many years what is it about this band or what they stand for or what their music is or their style like what is it about you two that you love so much yeah it's not because they're the first because like i said there must have been six other cds that came yeah. with this and who knows what those were i think maybe one of them was tears for fears greatest hits I like Tears for Fears from the radio. Like, I knew bands, and I knew songs that I liked, and the songs that I'd heard on the radio from the Joshua Tree. Like, I, I knew Pride in the Name of Love, and I liked that song. I knew Where the Streets Have No Name, With or Without You, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Like, who doesn't like those songs? They're great songs. They they appealed to my, you know, musical sense. I, I thought they were interesting. Uh, I You know, they, like, there's lots of songs on the radio that I was into, and I, I find the songs that were on Top 40 Radio that are still in my iTunes collections... I, it turns out they had something interesting behind them. So there was lots of songs there on Top 40 Radio that came and went and I forgot about. But, like, I still have Voices Carry in my iTunes collection. I'm not a giant Till Tuesday fan, but it turns out that Amy Mann is amazing and I have subsequently bought all of her solo albums. And, like, you know, when I was listening to uh, Voices Carry on the radio, not, I wasn't connecting it up to, oh, this is an interesting person, a great songwriter, this is going to stand the test of time. It was just kind of in the mix with everything else. But the the ones that, you know, the, the lesser ones fall away, and the ones that have some substance behind them, even if it's just the, the person involved uh, moves on to something greater, you find that those stick. So the U2 songs of all the sort of, uh, you know, regular hit songs that you listen to on the radio, those stuck. It felt like there was something more 
behind them. And I didn't really have a sense of the band's trajectory or its music because, again, just going by Sunday Bloody Sunday, all the Joshua Tree hits, Pride in the Name of Love, and then Octung Baby, but I, I did know that Octung Baby was different. Like, I had heard U2 before, and the things I associated with U2, this seemed very different from them. Uh, and that's why it was so interesting to me. And and I guess, you know, I was always I always knew there was something more behind U, U2's music besides just, like, you know, three-minute pop songs about boy meets girl, right? Like, there was, there was... They were more interesting, both musically and lyrically, than the average radio fare. Okay, John, let me just take a quick break to talk about our first sponsor for this week's show, and that is lynda.com, the online learning platform that houses over 3,000 on-demand video courses that can help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. You can grab yourself a free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com slash inquisitive. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash inquisitive. lynda.com is for problem solvers, people that are curious and who want to make things happen in their life. Maybe you have a skill that you've always wanted to master some description. Maybe you want to learn how to make iPhone apps. Maybe you want to learn how to use Xcode. Maybe you want to learn how to use Excel, PowerPoint, Word, Keynote, Pages, Photoshop, Aperture, Illustrator. The list goes on and on and on. You can go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. You will get yourself unlimited access to training videos from top experts who are super passionate about teaching the things that they're going to teach you. You can stream these thousands of video courses on demand, and this will allow you to learn at your own schedule and at your own pace as well. And you can learn and watch these videos in any order you want by creating and saving playlists. You can just consume these little videos in their bite-sized chunks from start to finish, or you can mix them up, mix them around, mix them with different courses as well. And then you're able to share them with your friends, colleagues, and team members if you like. If you're the type of person that likes to get their learning in in opportune moments in the day. You can even watch and download courses to your Android or iOS device. You can learn on the go, you can learn on the bus, you can learn in the break room. Your lynda.com membership is going to give you unlimited access to fantastic training on hundreds of topics, all for just one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, go ahead and visit lynda.com slash inquisitive and sign up for your free 10-day trial. Once again, that's lynda.com slash inquisitive. Thank you so much to lynda.com for the continued support of this show. Saying about this album being different, so to your disgust, uh, the first time I'd ever heard this album fully was this week in preparation for this. Um, and I know U2 stuff, of course I know U2 stuff, and, and I like some of it, but I've never been a U2 fan specifically. I have no problem against the band. They just never really grabbed me. Um, and pretty much all of the songs that I know or the stuff that I would consider to be U2 songs come from Joshua Tree. Like, that's what I know U2 to be like. Um, and Actung Baby wasn't kind of what I would have expected U2 to be. So surely, surely you knew one, though, right? Yeah, but one I feel is very similar to the songs on Joshua Tree that I know. Is it getting better? See, I disagree. I like I uh, sentimentally maybe, but musically and structurally, I think it is is different. The, the production is not as radically different as the other tracks. But if you put one on the Joshua Tree, it wouldn't fit. The instrumentation is not right. The the sort of the. the one life when it's one need. 
the voice and the singing like just it, it would not fit in that era i don't think but i get the i get your meaning that it's sort of more of a slow paced kind of like it fits more sentimentally with it. It doesn't seem like the other songs seem a lot more aggressive than Joshua Tree and Sonically yeah. very different. And one is a little bit more chill, but like one is the, is the standout song that most people who don't know you two know from Octung baby, if they know anything from the album. But for you two fans, this was a super important album uh, for the band. So like one for me again I, I i agree with you it doesn't sound like the stuff on joshua tree but it feels like to me like it, it feels like it's a song that's trying to say something but like say something about the world in in a straightforward earnest way because that defines the joshua tree and rattle hum very earnest yep exactly and so that that was it was surprising to me like if i, if I wouldn't have known i would have thought that actung baby was their first album that is the that's the thing about Octung Babies. I was defined by what came before and came after. So what came before, obviously, was the Joshua Tree, which is their like they had breakout hits. Like maybe War was their breakout album, right? Oh, hey, this is a band that you should be watching. And then uh, a couple of tracks people know from the Unforgettable Fire. Uh, but the Joshua Tree was like, all right, this is not just an interesting band. This is the band. This is the band and the. And I don't know how it was in in, in Europe uh, and the rest of the world, but in the U.S. I mean, the Joshua Tree was an album, sort of a reflection of of the U.S. It was a very U.S. centric album. It's, it's the band's experience in America and reflections on America. Uh, and Rattle and Hum, the follow up, was the you know double live album with a, a bunch of new tracks as well that uh, had a similar vibe to it. But the Joshua Tree was it. That's the, the album that put you two, you know, made made people write stories about you two being the biggest slash best band in the world for some period of years. Uh, and Rattle and Hum was, I'm going to say just more of the same, but it was definitely in the same vein. Like it was, it was continuing to mine that uh, area of, uh, of artistic uh, endeavor of uh, reflecting on America and their experiences. And it's sort of a more of a, I'm going to say church hymnal, spiritual, earnest kind of reflections, uh, that type of thing. Uh, but where do you go from there? Where do you go from the Joshua Tree, uh, except for down? And I think that's that was the problem that the band faced was the Joshua Tree is like the pinnacle. It's like, well, we've arrived. We four boys from uh, Dublin are this, the the biggest slash best band in the world, according to various articles that we read. We are the greatest. Everybody loves our songs. We're selling to sold out arenas. We have uh, we're topping the charts. Uh, we this defines you two, uh, this musical style, these lyrics, this look for all of us, all of our haircuts, what we're wearing. We are you two. What? Where do you go from there? And Rattle and Hum was not an answer. Rattle and Hum was like, I guess we do. Do we do this again? Kind of like here's some new songs uh, and stuff. And you guys like this, right? It's we went on a big tour and stuff. That wasn't the answer either. So they could have just sort of faded away and continued to put out albums that were derivative of the Joshua Tree, but never quite as good, which Rattle and Hum is not as good as the Joshua Tree, but it is clearly of the same family. They could have just petered off and continued in that style, but they didn't. Octung Baby 
was a complete reinvention of the band's sound, attitude, look, uh, even the lyrical style is is different. And if you go through their whole catalog, you can see the through line in, in all their music. Like, it's not that different. Like, you can tell these are U2 songs. Buried underneath all that stuff is U2. But it's like, here's the danger. You know, when if you're a band defined by a huge breakout album and a particular sound, as U2 was very, very much defined by its sound, that. It, uh, the Joshua Tree was sort of the the uh, sophisticated version of the chiming guitars from Boy October and War and all that. Uh, if you're defined by that, some it's tempting to make. Oh, we're we're going to be the new band. We're going to do this new thing. What do the kids like these days? The kids like, I don't know, distorted guitars or like uh, you know trance dance beats or whatever. Like some sort of thing that's a fad at the time. Take a band defined by one sound and apply that fad on top of them and it's a mess and like even when they're doing it you think it's kind of a mess and then years later you listen like oh this was a terrible mistake they should have never tried to do this uh this this band should never they should have stuck with their sound they look like they're putting on airs and they're sort of taking on uh, a a musical style that is not their own because it's popular and octung baby i think you two found a new sound that was still its own sound that didn't sound like any other albums put out that year and still sounds great and does not sound dated. And maybe, maybe that's, you know, the way I view it, but you as a new listener, do you, does any of that ring true to you? It, yeah, I can totally see that. Like, it, because it does feel very raw. Like that, that was my kind of like overriding feeling while I was listening to it was this feels like a very raw album. So I can, I understand the idea of like, reimagination i guess yeah and the the first single they put out from this album is a great great musical uh, introduction to uh to this new u2 that they they you know this new reinvention of themselves and i think you said in a previous episode of this that they tend to put the good songs at tracks three and seven did that come up in one of the earlier episodes yeah i think i think that was federico that said that yeah, so one is track three, and that that goes along with, like, I think they knew that was the best track on the album. It was also the least challenging for the existing YouTube bands. And track seven, the opening riff of track seven, that's The Fly. Uh, the quote, I was not surprised to see it on the Wikipedia page, but the, the quote from the band when they put out that first single from their album, again, this is pre-internet, so them releasing their first single was really the first listen you got of this new album. Uh, people ask what the deal was the, with the song, and they sound, they said it's the sound of four men chopping down the Joshua tree, huh. that opening riff of The Fly, which is what I think of when I think of this album. And I remember at the time reading that quote as I started to get into the band and thinking, but why would you why would you do that? Like the Joshua tree is great. Why would you chop that down? Like I don't know how old I was at the time, but I didn't quite understand it. But as time passed, I understood what they were doing. Like the only way forward was to become something different uh in all possible ways. So uh, the uh, the persona that Bono took on, uh the the addition of irony into their songs, the the sunglasses, the outfits, the whole like can they say the same thing from a more, you know, a more mature, uh, cynical perspective, but still be hopeful and earnest underneath it all? Can you pull that out without looking 
kind of doofy or like you are trying to grab onto something that should is really the province of younger bands uh and i think they really did pull it off i, I think the these songs are interesting and sound great and sound like you too but at the same time sound absolutely nothing like the joshua tree and that that's an amazing feat now i i don't know how many apple analogies have happened in this uh, podcast series so far but i I tend to think of things uh, in terms of that this album is kind of like the second coming of steve jobs right (laughs) stay with me here so (laughs) steve jobs uh founds apple uh, is there for the Apple II, which is uh, amazing, and creates the Macintosh, which is this revolutionary computer. Uh, and then, and that's that's like that's like the Joshua Tree, it's like the Macintosh. And then there are the dark times, very short dark times in YouTube's things. We've got Rattle and Hum. Uh, and then he comes back, and uh, against all odds, instead of just like continuing to do things that you know keeping the company afloat and doing the same things that apple had done for years and years he made something entirely new unexpected uh the ipod and the iphone that whole thing so unlike the personal computer stuff that had defined him before the analogy breaks apart a little bit but that's what i I think of this like if this had been u2's first album oh great this is an interesting band called u2 and it's got a pretty cool sound and whatever but because this is the same band that made the Joshua Tree, like the there, you know, the expression is there's no second acts in American life. So apparently there are second acts in uh, the life of uh, Irish rock bands. Not sure if they're third and fourth acts, and we could talk about their later later albums uh, a bit later in the show if you want. But this is a hell of a second act, and this this gave the enti- the band a complete second life as a great rock band. Uh, if if you if this had been their first album and they had just gone from there forward, they would still be a great band. And if they had ended after Joshua Tree and all died in a plane crash, they would still be a great band. But the fact that it's the same band that did both these uh, eras in history is phenomenal. When you listen to this album today, presuming that you do listen to it today, uh, how does it make you feel? Like what what kind of overall emotions do you do you feel when listening to this? So since U2 was the first band that I was heavily into, and I, I tend to be a, an obsessive person and have an obsessive personality, I really did get every ounce of music that this band made, all the singles, all the B-sides, a bunch of live tracks. I got the the outtakes, the stolen outtakes from the studio session that led to the creation of this album. Uh, and I put these all on tapes that I would listen to in my car uh, when I was uh, a teenager. And I listened to all these songs so many times i'm glad that itunes didn't exist because the play count ratings on every youtube track would be ridiculous so when i listen to this this album today it reminds me of that time in my life and i'm always struck by how i know every single note every single lyric every single nuance of all these songs unbelievably well because i just i just played them to death like so i listened to the album today on my way to and from work and it's like riding a bicycle. Like I, it never, I never lose it. Like this album for someone like me who didn't get into music until he was much older than most people start getting into music. Everything by U two that was recorded up to the point when I started, when you know, when I was like in, in high school, it's just burned into my brain that I've heard so many times. That's how I feel when I listen to it, and that's not an objective perspective. Uh, and I kind of feel the same way about almost all of their collection. But again, listening to this, 
like it's just amazing to me how I feel like I'm inhabiting the tracks that I know every little blip and hiss and warble and flange and drum beat and lyrical intonation of every one of these tracks and it just it just feels like home to me do you listen to it frequently so that's the flip side of this having listened to everything you two has ever done a hojillion times i tend to favor newer music when i am going through my itunes collection which means that i don't listen to much by youtube very often like when the new album came out i listened to that for a while as well but i'm not gonna say i've burned out on youtube because i haven't like i just listened to this album today and i enjoyed it and it was great but I do favor newer things because it's not like I'm listening to that. When I hear that characterization, it's like, oh, whatever music you were into when you were a teenager, that's the music you'll be into forever. It's like I have burned through that music that I was into when I was a teenager. Not that I don't like it anymore. I really do like it. But if given the choice, I'm more excited by a new track from a new band that I've never heard before or increasingly mashups of new bands that I like plus old bands that I like all smushed together into a new thing. So... Other than the big, big hits that I will maybe not skip when they're uh, going through, uh, you know, because I listen mostly on random play. Uh, yeah, I do not listen to most stuff by YouTube that often. Mostly because I feel like it's, if I want to listen to it, I can just play it in my head. It's all, it's like, it's like a Star Wars movie. It's like, how often do I watch a Star Wars movie? I've seen them so often I can watch them whenever I want by just playing them in my head. So I think that me and you have spoken about this before um, in an interview. Uh, about the fact that you were so fanatical about U2 that you you had a lyric site, right? Like the lyric site. Yeah, back in the day. I actually just pulled it up prior to the show. I still have the files locally, and all the files were written so they would so you could use them locally. They were all relative links because I was a cheapskate, and still am, and like to find free hosting for them. Whenever I found free hosting, I would just throw the thing up there and just a bunch of static files, and wherever you put them, they would all all the cross-links to each other would work. So yeah, I just opened it up. It's still all there, but the, the images are really small because <laughs> the web was smaller back then. <laughs> so this, you know, you were, you were kind of consumed by them right would would maybe be an, a, a way to put it like they they were a band that meant an incredible deal to you to the point where you would pour a lot of time into making something in homage to them in a way maybe i would reverse that i wasn't consumed by them uh, i consumed them right. as, as in so many other things yes i i voraciously consumed everything related to them and related to computers and so on and so forth but yeah sure devoured even mm-hmm. um do you think that any other band could have that effect on you? I assume that no other has. Well, I mean, because U2 was the first and they were the most appealing to me, I, I it's it's hard to say, but there are other bands, like there's sort of a, a holy trinity of early bands for me. It was U2, R.E.M., Bruce Springsteen. And I wasn't into R.E.M. or Bruce Springsteen as much as I was into U2 in terms of like reading every nonfiction book ever written about them and uh, looking up articles online on the uh, microfilm and microfiche in the library. Like, I wasn't that into them, but I had all their music, and I listened to it all and knew all the lyrics. And that that trinity sort of was my sort of foundation, a musical foundation for everything else that would come later. Um, and if you were to look at the play counts on my uh, you, uh, iTunes library today, I think you would see that R.E.M., is probably in the lead out of those three. And it's not to say that I 
like REM better than the other ones, but maybe they've they've stood the test of time better than U2 ones and Springsteen, or maybe it's because I played all of them so much and U2 uh, took longer for me to get into. Uh, but I think any one of those, if U2 hadn't existed, REM could have filled that easily, and I would have just devoured everything about uh, U2 or Bruce Springsteen. So I want to talk about your favorite favorite tracks that exist on this album. Um, do you have a number one favorite? Yeah, I think you have to go with one, uh, just because it's such a it's such a transcend. The song transcends this album. Like in, in ways, I think that the tracks in the Joshua Tree don't transcend the Joshua Tree because they are part of the Joshua Tree and they are amazing, but they they aren't they aren't out above it. Uh, one, I feel like it is for, for a variety of reasons, like that the story behind it of, of the, like the song where the band band was really struggling in the studio, not sure if they should break up or what, couldn't figure out how to how to uh, how to become the new U2. And one is where it kind of started to come together for them. They said, oh, actually, we can make decent music. We can still make music. We're not irrelevant at their ripe old age or whatever they were then 38 years old or whatever. Uh, and it being like so many of their of song every every u2 song potentially about at least three different things at once you know most of their songs can be read as a uh you know man woman relationship they can also almost all be read as a human to god relationship or conversation and there's usually also some kind of subject matter underlying it whether it be the troubles in ireland or aids or whatever one fits all the criteria it's musically beautiful it's lyrically interesting uh it is uh i think it's the best track on this album even if it isn't the most octungy and so this is one is probably is arguably the song that has lasted the longest from this album as well right yeah but i think that's only because u2 has so many hits uh right. again if this had really been their first album i would imagine mysterious ways would be elevated because this is also very a poppy catchy kind of thing I think that's probably it for the most accessible songs that uh, like everything else is for, you know, the kind the, the U2 connoisseur who uh, understand, who understand where they're coming from. Like it's, it's kind of, if this was their first album, it would be kind of be like the bends for them. Like Radiohead's the bends, right? It's, it's not, the, it's not, wouldn't have been their okay computer. Be like, Hey, th- this band has really interesting ideas. I wonder where they're going to go with this. Like sure. th- this, this, this is the bends for, uh, for U2. Uh, but other favorite tracks for me, like I listened to them all today, and I was I knew this would come up on the show. Like, what are my favorite? Like, I like them all. There is not a track that I dislike. There's not a track that I'm lukewarm on. The only thing I could come up with as listening to these today is maybe I'm a little bit lukewarm on the production of Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses, uh, and I, the live version of Love of Bl- Love is Blindness is so much better than the album version that I kind of have a little prejudice against it there. But every one of these songs has, like most U2's songs, has such great bones, such great structure that when you, like they're great in the album version with all, all the uh, the amazing effects and production, but all of them hold up like with an acoustic guitar and one singer all the way up to just a, a full live band and then up to the album version. Like there's no stinkers in this entire thing. I, I think there are probably weaker tracks on the Joshua Tree than there are on this album. I think they're all great. U2, when they were touring America or somewhere in America, maybe it was on, on the War Tour or the Unforgettable Fire Tour. Uh, no, actually, it must have been the Joshua Tree Tour. Uh, at some point, they were hitchhiking. This tells you this is a thing they could do at that point. And someone picked them up 
uh, in their car and they were super excited that it's U2, like, oh my God, oh my God, uh, I'm such a big fan. And when U2 got into the car, the guy swapped out the cassette tape he was listening to, which was like Def Leppard or something like that, and put in some U2 music, which probably like a little gauche to be doing that but anyway this is this so the story goes that they they he took out the, the tape he was listening to and shoved in some u2 and one of the members of u2 probably bono or the edge in this interview was saying that they were struck by how when they took out this you know more traditional rock and roll band and put in the u2 song the music sounded kind of like more timid like basically it didn't ha- it didn't have a lot of bottom end it wasn't like it wasn't strong and aggressive it sounded more kind of tinny and distant than the sort of thumping rock that was in there before and you know i i think treble heavy uh uh drums guitar uh bass singer pop music joshua tree is right up there at the peak of that like they they are experts in that art form but they they wanted more and the music they listened to and were fans of had something more to it and so i think octung baby is their their attempt to say can we can we be that thing that we enjoy so much in other music even though thus far our musical journey has led us away from that and so if you listen to almost any track in octung baby they have a, a, ba- a driving bass lines and emphasized bass that just totally washes out anything on any u2 album before with the possible exception of a couple of the sort of military marches on war uh and so when i was listening to it in the car today with a a reasonable sound system with a little bit of bass i was struck by how how thumping compared to the joshua tree again i'm not saying this is like you know hardcore uh r&b thumping bass but compared to the joshua tree how bottom heavy this is So many songs have great bass lines, and I find myself when I listen to this album, rather, you know, some some albums you listen to and you do an air guitar to the guitar parts or whatever, I find myself air basing to the bass lines of these various songs. When I listen to these songs, sometimes I feel like all I'm hearing is the bass line and then there's a bunch of stuff surrounding it. Uh, so uh, Mysterious Ways has got that. Um, let's see, what what's a good one? Uh, they all have a, a bass line, even like Love is Blindness, lots of little thumping things in there. Um, that's what really uh, sticks with me musically when I listen to it today, how how obsessed I am with the bass lines of these things. I would very much uh, take great pleasure and would probably play Good Money Charity to see you play air guitar, John. Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, doing air guitar to the edge, uh, I'm not, how familiar are you with, well, you're probably not very familiar with edge as a guitarist. But, uh, oh, yeah, I am. know the Joshua Tree. Well, so his, his style... Uh, can uncharitably be described as how you would play a solo if you can't play guitar very well because it's single, simple notes and harmonics not struck very quickly, Uh, not lots of hammer-ons and pull-offs and quick changes. They're the kinds of solos that if you just play them on an acoustic guitar, you sound like 
a beginner student learning scales or something, right? He had, does have some chops. He's no Eddie Van Halen. He never will be, right? But the genius is that he has such good musical taste uh, and is such a master of his instrument that he can make seven different notes and a couple of little harmonics into this amazing sort of guitar concerto just done with one instrument like listen to if you listen to the guitar parts on a lot of the tracks on Octane Baby if you look at what he's actually playing he's playing like seven notes with long spaces between them and it sounds like he's conducting a chorus of angels but if you look at what he's doing with his hand he's doing nothing how is that even possible? Like uh, the Unforgettable Fire had that as well. The Unforgettable Fire, a little bit faster, chimey stuff or whatever. But the the kind of sounds uh, and sort of musical uh, emotion that comes out of so few notes is just phenomenal. And that's one of the things I really like about him and about about the way about the the musical sound that they make. Like I mean, again, when they go to acoustic, the chords are fine too, and he can just strum out the chords and do fine like that. But a lot of the songs are defined by three or four notes in, in a sequence with certain effects and, and bends and, you know, flanges and warbles and all that good stuff that make it sound like a whole other vocal section. Uh, and I, that's why I feel like I kind of get lost in these songs, listening to those listening to those guitar parts that I know because, you know, I downloaded all the guitar tablature and ASCII from Usenet back in the day and tried to play them all. And you're like, that's what he's playing? That? That sounds like nothing. And he's like, well, okay, well, you need... You need everything that he's got to make that sound like the song. Or you can just play the chords and then it sounds like a good folksy kind of, you know, uh, Joshua Tree error uh, sort of hymnal U2 song. That sounds fine, too. But if you want to play what you hear on the album, it is incredibly difficult and it has little to do with uh, finger acrobatics. So when you're soloing him, you are soloing and it doesn't look like you're doing much, but I know a lot of the notes to these solos and you can pretend you do them and I can just pretend that I'm also playing the reverb part so I can hit three notes instead of one. Can you play guitar? Uh, define play. I mean, I when I was in college, everyone had a guitar and was trying to learn how to play guitar. So I bought a guitar and tried to learn how to play guitar. I can play a couple of chords. I played it long enough to know that I was never going to be good at it. Uh, which is pretty much how long I played keyboards as well. Like I can fake guitar and keyboards the same way I play video games, uh, but like video games and unlike people who can actually play musical instruments, when I stopped playing keyboard for many years, now I can't play anything anymore. But back in the day I could play stuff that looked impressive on the keyboard, but it was so clear that I, I couldn't actually play. I was just sort of imitating what people could do. So anyway, with the guitar, I enjoyed plucking out things from guitar tab that I downloaded on the internet. That was a fun pastime, but I, I'm not an actual player. Uh, I have I have no rhythm, which is a real barrier <laughs> to ever being good at a musical instrument. I just literally have no rhythm. And I know I have no rhythm. And if I heard myself played back, I would say, this person who's playing this has no rhythm. So it's really just something I did to entertain myself. And now my guitar that I got in college is in my daughter's room, and she just plays with it the same as me i can't tell if she has rhythm yet but probably not i wanted to take a quick break to thank our friends over at cards against humanity for sponsoring this week's episode of inquisitive as you know by now there's nothing that they love more than playing a few seconds of a 90s pop song and then stopping it abruptly like this uh. 
Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Miami. Uh, uh, South Beach, bringing the heat. Uh, uh. My thanks to Cards Against Humanity for their continued commitment to this type of music and for sponsoring this week's episode of Inquisitive. You mentioned Springsteen and R.E.M. Uh, and, you know, along with U2, whilst these bands don't necessarily play very similar types of music, I would take a pretty strong bet that many people who like one of them probably like all three of them, right? There's, there seems to be like a linkage there between these bands that they, they seem to kind of go together quite nicely. Um, where else do your music tastes tend to, to go? Yeah, so those three, I think the link between them is kind of earnest, intellectual, disaffected white person music. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, I love all three. Like, uh, you know, same of a, of, of a certain age, right? And so they they all have kind of uh, literary pretensions buried in uh, in a musical style that usually doesn't support that type of thing. Uh and they all speak to, I think, uh, angsty teenager version of me in different ways. And that's been my thing kind of for the most part, I, even as I've gotten older. I'm now less angsty and I'm not a teenager. Uh, but I've always been interested in music that takes itself seriously, that actually has something to say. Sort of disposable pop music is fun but it never appeals to me to the point where I'm even to the point where I'm going to buy the single, let alone buy the album. I always want there to be more uh, underneath it all. Um, but I'm not beyond being into something uh, initially and primarily because of the music, because I'm very interested in, in the, you know, new sounds and different sounds. That's one of the reasons I like, uh, sort of electronic video game music, uh, not too weird stuff, but uh, enough that uh, I'll I'll say, oh well, I haven't heard music like that before. That's really interesting, and pursue it as far as it's going to go. So, the obvious follow-up band to those three, if you're going to add something to the Holy Trinity and you're going to make it a what is it with four quad something quadrilogy, uh, Radiohead is the next one. Like it wasn't there wasn't much of a gap. Because I got uh, Radiohead's first album when it first came out, maybe also as part of the free CD thing. And from that album, the only one that stood out to me was the one I'd seen the video for a million times on MTV. It was the Buzz Clip, kids. I think that's what it was called. Uh, it was Creep. And you listen to the rest of that album, it's like, yeah, well, whatever. But there was something to Creep, kind of like Voices Carry. Something to Creep that you could say, this band, this person singing... There's something there. I don't know what it is yet, but there's something There's something there beyond everything else that this album has to show me. So I bought the next album and the next one and the next one, and like Radiohead very quickly jumped right up into the pantheon with those three because they had they had everything. They, had, they seemed like they had something to say. They were musically interesting and getting more interesting all the time, took themselves seriously, and were kind of angsty white guy alternative-ish, rocky music, right? So that's not too far outside the norm. Uh, and I think what you're getting at eventually is the bands that people don't expect me to be into. Um, uh, Lady Gaga, when she came out with her first album, I heard about her the same way you hear about most pop sort of music people, whatever, and I knew a lot of people who were into that, and 
I was not interested in like whatever. Like I'm not interested in regular pop music. But I don't. Somehow someone got me to listen to a track, and I thought the production was really interesting. It was the album version of Paparazzi, and I thought, wow, this this is an interesting twist on sort of the the modern uh, pop rock song. I really thought the production was interesting, and then. I think the same people who are, were uh, very into Lady Gaga threw me an acoustic version of Paparazzi, where she went to a radio station and played just by sitting in front of a piano, playing the piano and singing to a microphone. Same song. Uh, and I immediately knew, okay, there's something there. A, this, this person actually has something to say. And B, this person is immensely talented. Like, this is not just... I don't want to slag Britney Spears or whatever, but this is not just some random Britney Spears. Someone else writes all the, the lyrics and music and they just, you know, come out and do something like that. There's something there to Lady Gaga. And that was it for Lady Gaga. I bought the album. I bought every subsequent album. I feel like she is an amazing vocalist, an amazing songwriter, has something to say. And most of her albums are very musically interesting and appealing to me. In general, are you a music person or a lyrics person? What do you tend to gravitate towards? I think I'm a pretty even split, maybe weighted towards music, because there are some songs where the lyrics are slight or are nearly nonsensical or not important, but I love the music so much I can get by on them. But there are, like, it's important to me to know the lyrics to songs, obviously having run a, a lyrics website. The more I get into a band, the more I want to know everything about them, and knowing the lyrics in the song is an important first step in understanding what the hell they're talking about. Uh, and it's difficult because singers mumble, <laughs> and you can't hear them over the guitars, and uh, lots of misinterpretations of lyrics exist. That was part of my motivation to do the lyrics website, is you'd try to look up YouTube lyrics on the web, and you'd see these awful lyrics transcribed by somebody who just was not getting like it, there were sound alikes you know those i think they have those uh youtube videos where they'll take a song and just have different words that sound what is it the lip syncing videos or something like different words yeah. that sound like the same right that was like what all the lyrics like no you guys you guys are missing it that's not what he's saying in the song how can you listen to and appreciate the song if you don't even know what he's saying so i am very into lyrics but i do admit that a, 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 you know a catchy tune or a really interesting uh production can go a long way a lot of songs that a lot of also into mashups by the way like mashups of like artists that i had never heard of or didn't get into until i heard them on a mashup like adele who i'm really into i first heard on mashups that year when 21 came out and she was in every single freaking mashup i found her through mashups um so that's the type of thing where sometimes in a mashup i'll really enjoy a mashup and realize this mashup has like seven lyrics repeated over and over again right it's almost you know there's a lot of sort of dance beats in mashups and everything. It's not that important to have like a, you know, a song that is a narrative, like a Bruce Springsteen song, or even a song with like a theme and a message like a U2 one. Sometimes if you just have a couple of little silly verses and a chorus repeated over and over again on top of some crazy dance beats, that's good enough for me too. Do you like to sing? Uh, sure. Yeah. I sing in the car. Uh, in the shower occasionally not so much in the shower because i listen to podcasts in the shower these days so there's no singing to those but yeah i can't actually sing i can't carry a tune uh so i only do this when i'm alone so i'm not torturing other people but yeah it's fun and where do you listen to music well the car i have you know i have an ipod in the car i have my phone with me right and when i do a podcast i'm bluetoothing from my phone but i also have an ipod dedicated to the car just plugged into the car all the time and that has all my music on it 
and most of the time I'm doing podcasts in the car, but sometimes the mood strikes me, usually when I'm in a good mood, like when I'm in a bad mood, I'm, I tend not to listen to the music, but if I'm in a good mood and I'm going on a drive somewhere, I say, you know what, now is not a podcast drive, this is a music drive, and I switch to the iPod. That's probably where I listen to most of my music. I used to listen to it more at work when I had sort of uninterrupted stretches where I could listen to music. I can't listen to music when I'm writing. I can sometimes listen to music when I'm coding. I can definitely listen to music when I'm doing something visual like tweaking CSS uh, because that's two separate parts of my brain. So car and work are probably the, the most number of hours logged with work tailing off because lately I haven't really had uninterrupted stretches of the type of work I can do uh, while listening. So, yeah, mostly car. Do you listen to anything while coding? Not really. Like, if I'm doing the real hard work, uh, if it's easy coding, I can listen to music. I can't listen to podcasts at all. Forget it. Because I won't pay attention to what people are saying. Uh, If it's easy coding, I can listen to some music. But once it gets hard, I just have to hit pause and, you know, not so much easy stuff these days. You just shut it all off kind of thing. Yeah. Sometimes still keep the headphones on because of the the terribleness of the open office plan that is the scourge of uh, U.S. business these days, Uh, just to, to block out everybody else, you know. Have you tried to play this album for other people, and how does that tend to fare? I don't think so. Uh, I'm not the type of person who tries to play music for other people that often. Uh, the few times I have tried to do it has not gone well. I remember that the, the most recent time I can remember is when I was first getting Jonathan Colton, another artist who I dearly love and own everything about. And actually, I've seen Jonathan Colton live more than any other artist in my collection, uh, mostly because it was more accessible to me. Back before he was big, um, I tried playing Jonathan Colton. <laughs> Do you have music. to throw that in there? <laughs> yeah, no, because like it was easier to get tickets then. You know what I mean? Like it, it was not. I saw him in a room with like fifty other people. I don't think he plays rooms that small anymore, right? So it was easy. To, you didn't have to battle to get a ticket or try to get good seats. They were all good seats or whatever. Anyway, I tried to play him for a bunch of people because I was just so bowled away, uh, you know, blown away by it, saying like. This, you know, if you are a geek like me, you got to listen to this. Of course, of course, you'll love it because he's brilliant and this is awesome and it's hilarious and touching and poignant and everything. And then I played it for a bunch of people and they were like, "Yeah, I don't get it." And so that was disappointing. I don't think I've ever uh, thrown acting a baby at someone and said, "You have to listen to this." Mostly because, like, you know, everybody knows one. Maybe they've heard "Mysterious Ways." Maybe, maybe "The Fly." If they, if none of those stuck, none of the other songs are going to be interesting to them either. I think I've played live versions of some of this for people who are familiar with it to say, "Oh, there's another dimension to this." Listen to this live version of this song; it's actually great. Uh, but no, that's not that's not my move usually. I've had the same problem with Colton, like trying to get people to listen and understand it, and it just never seems to really work. Yeah, it's the it's the wrong environment because to to really appreciate John the Colton, you have to listen to the lyrics. Like you just have to. Yeah. Not that the music isn't great because it is. Like I I really love his cover of "Don't Talk to Strangers," which isn't even a song that he wrote. Like he, musically, he does have interesting things. I also love the uh, slash dot version of Code Monkey, showing some more of his musical chops. But but in general, you have to listen to the lyrics. Otherwise, you're not going to get it. And when someone says you have to listen to this, like the lyrics just bounce off you know you have to hear the song a few times to sort of process it all and i think that's why it's it's kryptonite for the hey everybody you should listen to this one like especially if someone's like waiting for you to listen to it or watching you like they're just not gonna get it it's it's the worst have you ever seen Aktung baby played live so I, I saw you two play live once uh on the pop tour 
which is not a great tour from everything that I've read about it. Uh, they did play some songs from Octone Baby, but it's just a gigantic stadium. Uh, the only really good, memorable moment I have from that, like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of live music. I usually like the album versions better. And when I do like live music, it's the culling of, like, they've played this song live 800 times. Here is the best performance. Pull that one out. That's why I have, like, you know, live music collections. But when I saw them, you know, live music in a giant arena from an album that was not one of their best ones. They played a bunch of old stuff, too. The, the standout moment, I think, was they did Love is Blindness, and they had a giant mirrored ball. It might have been the giant mirrored lemon or something that they shot a, a, a light at to be like a disco ball and rotated. Uh, you, you know, it's like when you shine a spotlight on, on a disco ball and it makes like little uh, lights around the room and you rotate the ball and the lights move around. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they did that in, I think this was Giant Stadium. They did that in Giant Stadium while doing Love is Blindness and it shrunk Giant Stadium down to the size of a club because everything was so upsized about the scale. Like that wasn't a mirror ball. It was a mirrored lemon or whatever that was like two stories high. And each one of those dots rotating around wasn't like a dot the size of a thumbtack on a wall. It was a dot the size of a Volkswagen rotating around Giant Stadium. And that was the one moment in that live show that I felt like the entire stadium finally shrunk down to an actual sort of intimate venue and we felt like we were all there uh in in one small room together with you two everything else about that show was not great acoustics and so-so performances of songs some of which weren't that great why did you go to see them by that point i had been into youtube for so long i had the means to (laughs) i barely had the means to get tickets again this was pre-internet ticket sales this was everyone calling on a telephone to Ticketmaster when the tickets went on sales to try to get maybe they had internet ticket sales i didn't know about them i was it i was at school so i had internet access but anyway it was telephone calls to get tickets at great expense everyone calling at once um i planned it out i got tickets the seats were terrible but i got them i knew i was going to be home in new york around the time of the show i guess it must have been spring break or something and so i could get to uh, giant stadium uh, and I figured, like, look, this is, you know, your favorite band in the whole world. You've never seen them live. You can't go back in time and see them live at the Paradise, unfortunately, uh, which was right down the street from me at school. <laughs> and every time I walk past it, I'm like, I read about you two playing there many, you know, I was too young, right? So I just wanted to do it once. I did it once. Uh, again, I'm not a big, I haven't seen any of these other bands that I love other than Jonathan Colton live. I'm not a big live music fan, but I just, I just wanted to say that I'd done it. Have you seen you two live? Yes, I have. Are you proud of this choice? You you made an interesting, you know, you came to this in an interesting way in trying to pick a favorite to say it's a favorite, even though there kind of really isn't one. Are you proud of this choice? Yeah, because I think the Joshua Tree is the obvious choice. It's easy to talk about what's great about the Joshua Tree, but I think Octung Baby is more interesting and and like I said, I think the highs of Joshua Tree may be higher and there may be more of them. But it it dips a little bit lower, like this. Not the not that the throwaway tracks in the Joshua Tree, but there are more of the sort of like musical experiment that that could have been a B side, but happened to make it to the album. Um, Octung Baby is solid all the way through, and I just think it's a phenomenal achievement of any band. Uh, any band with it. it's a phenomenal achievement. Uh, bottom line, to have a band that's like four people who met when they were kids and are still together and still making music, decent music, good music, and it is completely amazing to have a band reach the pinnacle of the entire music world briefly start to stumble a little bit and then regroup 
and do something great again. And I think we didn't talk about what came after, but like Octung Baby's like, wow, you've really reinvented yourself by, you know, uh, redefining what it means to be you two and making this great, amazing, interesting album that eventually stood the test of time. What do you do next? Uh, what they did next was they took the little baby on the cover. You don't know the little the baby star car thing. It was the logo they were using for a little drawing of a baby's face. Anyway, the follow-up album was they took that baby and they put him in a space helmet. And they said, no, we're, we're, we are not retreating. We're going to even go even farther in that direction. And it can be argued that they went farther and farther and too far and, and outran their oxygen supply and left the atmosphere and started to burn up a little bit by getting close to the sun. Uh, but I admire the fact that they they did not retreat, at least for a very long time, to the comfort of the Joshua Tree and just ch- continued to drive this as far as they possibly could. I, I admire the band for doing that, and I think this album is a key turning point in their in their careers and is an amazing musical achievement, even if every top ten list is going to rank the Joshua Tree higher. Yeah. 